Hey, Paul, I'm excited to tell you that we are launching a Curbsiders Patreon. Have you heard about this? I I did because I work with you, but tell me more about it. (laughs) All right, Paul. Well, we want to be able to keep offering this great free content, and we're doing things like upgrading our website. We offer transcripts now for episodes, recording new seasons of our miniseries, Teach and Addiction Medicine. The Digest is growing its staff. And Paul, now we're on video. People can see us uh, as we're talking right here. What a treat for our listeners. That's right. So with Cashlack admitting privileges, they're going to get all episodes ad-free. That's the whole back catalog plus future episodes. And twice monthly, there's going to be bonus episodes where me and you recap a show and answer some listener questions. So people should sign up today at patreon.com slash curbsiders. And uh, you get a whole lot of more of Paul, America's PCP. <laughs> Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 3, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzhnevskaya. We have a special episode today. We're chatting with Dr. Andy Marmore on professionalism. Before we dive into that, Ira, could you remind listeners what we do on the show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And we are pumped to be sitting down with Andy uh, today. We are diving deep into the definitions and the domains and the details and how to assess professionalism. So lots of awesome frameworks to use and kind of practical tips in this space. Dr. Andy Marmore is a pediatrician, medical educator, coach, and faculty developer. She's clinically based at the San Francisco General Hospital and teaches at the UCSF School of Medicine. She loves learning from and teaching absolutely all levels of learners, from her daughter's fourth grade class to fellow faculty. A reminder that most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And if you love the content the Curbsiders family produces, we also want to encourage you to think about supporting our Patreon. Your support helps pay for the audio editing, transcripts, and lets us create the accessible, high-quality content you're used to receiving. The link and so many more resources like our show notes, infographics, transcripts, and much more is available on our website. So without without further further ado, let's let's get get to it. it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Marmore. Let's just start with some rapid-fired questions to get to know you a little bit better. And during this recording, are you okay if we call you Andy? Yes, please do. Wonderful. Well, we uh, will have read your professional bio already, um, but could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself, maybe including something outside of medicine? Ooh, okay. Well, um, I am a parent of a uh, nine-and-three-quarters-year-old kiddo. I'm a cat owner. I like to make jewelry in my spare time. I am very much looking forward to some summer weather. Um, I think that's it. I love podcasts. I like listening to them. (laughs) I like making them. I'm a podcast fan. That's awesome. Well, Andy, on that vein, has there been any uh, podcast or album or movie or book that you've recently enjoyed? Um, yes, many of them. I'm kind of a, a little bit of a, a Netflix consumer at the moment. I will say one of the more interesting books that I 
read or actually listened to, uh, to be totally fair, was um, by Richard Russell of Boys and Men. Ooh. And it's actually it's a very recent book and it's about kind of the 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 challenge that boys and men are in in America right now. And I, you know, consider myself a feminist and I've always been very interested in how, you know, women have achieved more over the years and and um and the role that men have had in that as well. And, and it was just really interesting to read about some of the changes that the male role has had in our country um, in the last few hundred years. And I, I think he did a really nice job of laying it out and, and also really appropriately pointing out that it's not a zero sum game. We can we can, you know, all succeed in different ways. And, and it's OK to, to focus on uh, the struggles that others are having, even if they maybe have enjoyed um, majority privilege for a long time. So it was really thought provoking. Very interesting. Were you drawn to that kind of thinking about raising your son or did was there something no, that brought you to No, I have a daughter, but I oh, have daughter. two okay. nephews. Yeah, but I have two nephews and it did it did um inspire me a little bit actually in thinking about them. That's actually a great point. Yeah. Cool. Uh well, is there something in your teaching or educational approach that you're working on changing or something that you can think of that you're doing differently that you used to do in another way a few years ago? Yeah, I mean, I would say for me, there's a continual goal and learning around, you know, whether you call it DEI, anti-oppressive teaching, anti-racism. I, I think that is a lifelong journey that I have been on and will continue to be on, I'm sure, for the rest of my career. So I would say that's very much a focus of mine, learning from others and trying to incorporate as much as I can, um, you know, what our experts. Uh, you know, we're very lucky to, to work in a place where we have lots of experts in, in those areas. And so I, I'm just looking forward to continuing to learn from them and continuing to improve my teaching in those areas. Fantastic. And Ira, I know you always have a pick of the week. So <laughs> what do you have for us today? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, um, I'm excited to share a movie that I saw on the plane because that's where I see many movies nowadays. And it's the Tom Hanks movie, A Man Called Otto. I don't know if y'all have I seen saw it. that on a plane too. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was, Last week. Yes, me too. I was bawling because one, I like to believe the altitude causes crying, but also this movie, which is based off of a book actually from 2012. Um, by I think someone named Friedrich um, Backman, um, but the book is called A Man Called Ova, which is like a Swedish, um, I think it's a Swedish, Andy, please correct me, um, uh, name. But basically, this is about a widower who is um, kind of the stereotype of a grumpy old man, and you kind of find out why and what has happened to him, what's happened to his wife, what's happened to the neighborhood. And then there's this like figure of positivity that moves in next door. And Molly, I, I just, I feel like you would love it. Andy, I feel like you would love it. There's, there's highlights where I laughed out loud on the plane and yep. people were looking at me and then I was bawling and people were looking at me at one point, the flight attendant was like, are you okay, ma'am? And I was like, yes, it's just oh, such no. a good movie. And then the flight attendant was like, oh yeah, I've seen that one too. So it's, it's just, Did you a, know that Tom Hanks's real son plays his, plays him as a younger Tom Hanks in the movie. No. The actor that plays him in the past is his real son. Stop. I was just He's trying to figure out how that person picked up all of like Tom Hanks' yep. mannerisms nope. in That's a way. That's his son. It's oh his lesser gosh. known actor son. He has another son who's done like a bunch of things, but this is another son who's an actor, but maybe a little bit less visible. 
Yeah, it was, it's, it's pretty moving. It's, it's also, it's, I mean, truly in Swedish kind of form, it's a comedy drama tragedy, basically. So you're like, you're definitely going through all the emotions, but, um, an incredible, just really an incredible story. I don't know, Andy, if you have other thoughts on it. No, I, I completely agree. Yes, it was, it was really moving and unexpected. I was sort of like, Tom Hanks, this will be hilarious. And then like 10 minutes in, I'm like, well, this isn't funny. (laughs) (laughs) I know when someone's going through different ways that they could die by suicide, you're like, this is it's going to be an interesting movie right now. not what I was expecting. Yeah, yeah. Molly, do you have a pick of the week that might be a little bit of a brighter spot maybe? Who knows? Uh, Yeah, sure. The last week or two, I've been spending a lot of time with my kids working on our garden now that it's getting to be more springtime and warmer. And um, it's just my, my younger one is three and it's just really fun kind of showing him how plants grow and and seeing him kind of be really excited to have the the little seedlings pop up and we have to still work on not picking all the seedlings but uh. <laughs> I found out recently that you can plant the little white ends with the roots from a scallion mm-hmm. and the scallions will just grow right out I, you just stick them right in the dirt I was we we do that with our onions that we have yep. forgotten to use and they have sprouted in the vegetable bowl so yeah <laughs> yeah I love that. I love that. Well, speaking of growth and sprouting, should we um, talk about our case? Absolutely. So this is Jake. Um, He's a second year medical student from Cashlack Memorial, and he's meeting with you, Andy, his four-year longitudinal coach, uh, as a check-in during one of their intercession weeks. And Jake is recalling a situation with a small group facilitator, Matt, uh, who he says just really rubbed him the wrong way. He couldn't put a finger on what was what it was about Matt, but he just realized that this session that Matt was leading was just not going to go well. Jake had also not read any of the prep material for this session. Uh, and as soon as Matt, the facilitator, asked Jake a question, one that seemed kind of targeted in Jake's mind, um, he couldn't handle it anymore. And he got up and left the small group. And Jake is meeting with you to debrief this situation and kind of this interaction. And Andy, I can imagine that the situation may feel familiar uh, to folks who are working with pre-clinical learners, especially. And before kind of we dive into it, which there's professionalism written kind of all over this, maybe could you share how you think about or conceptualize uh, professionalism? Yeah, I think it's a great place to start. And and I want to just say right off the bat that this term is... Um, one that doesn't necessarily have positive connotations for a lot of our learners and a lot of our faculty. And so I want to acknowledge that right off the bat. I, I think the way I think about it or the way I've come to think about it, um, having done a, you know some reading on the topic and a lot of thinking about it, is that professionalism really at its core is a set of shared values um, that we hold as a, as a profession and as members of a profession. And, and you can imagine that those values might in fact be core and relatively stable over time, but how those values are expressed or how we might assess them or how we might, you know, and this is the most challenging part, how we might assess how a learner actually is espousing or, or, um, or expressing those values is very, very challenging. And, and I think some really important concepts we have to keep in mind when we think about professionalism, which has historically been used to exclude members from the medical profession, particularly people who are not well represented in medicine. That demographic has changed. But over time, that's included women. That's included people of color. um, That's included pretty much every group you can name. So I think we have to really acknowledge that right off the bat, that professionalism has been used to exclude people, um, has been used to... um, 
make it more difficult for certain people to feel comfortable within the profession of, of medicine and that, and that it will have a negative connotation um, for many folks that we're working with. So I think that's really important. Um, keeping in mind as well a couple of really important concepts like cultural humility, um, just the, the recognition that our experience is not the same as experiences of others, and then something like structural competency, which is the recognition really that systems uh, influence how people behavior behave. And so I think those two concepts are very important within professionalism. Um, so that said, and those challenges uh, uh, put out there for us to consider, I would I would say that um, really, if you think about a core set of values, if you think of professionalism as a core set of values, um, are there things that we and our learners, no matter what generation they're from, no matter what background they have, no matter you know what their goals and dreams and whether they're similar to ours as faculty members, are there shared values that we believe our profession should uphold? And that's really how I like to think about professionalism. Well, thank you for putting that historical context there, because I, I think it is something that comes up a lot that there is this shifting definition of professionalism and who's defining it can certainly impact that. Um, within those constraints, what are the important domains of professional behavior and how does physician identity formation factor into this? I think especially when we think about assessing professionalism, which is really what we're talking about here when we're thinking about the medical education aspects of it. And domains of professionalism are helpful because they help us recognize that this is a concept that has a number of different levels and a number of different you know, qualities of behaviors that we might be looking at or assessing in a learner or in each other, in our colleagues. Um, the, the, the framework that I like, there's a number of frameworks out there. They're all wonderful. But the one that I like, because it's relatively simple and easy to understand, is the Wilkinson framework. And that includes several domains of professional behavior. And I say behavior because behaviors are things we can observe and we can kind of objectively uh, uh, assess or supposedly ob objectively obsess. Uh, obsess. So, so the domains of professionalism that I like to consider are um, communication with your colleagues or interaction with your colleagues, with other members of the health profession, uh, interactions with patients, which for many is really the core and the most important piece of professional behavior, reliability, which is things like showing up and doing what you say you're going to do, ethical practice behavior, um, which is you know being honest, not lying about things. And then autonomous uh, self-maintenance, which is really self-improvement. And, you know, we're on a CME podcast, so <laughs> we all we all know how important those is, that is. So that doesn't include everything, but I think those domains help us recognize when we're uh, thinking about a learner like Jake, what domains might be affected there. Uh, and that does help us narrow a little bit what how we might approach someone like Jake. The second question about professional identity formation, I think, is also really important. Professional identity formation is quite distinct from professionalism in that it's really an internal process that our learners, that we go through. I consider myself still developing my own personal professional identity. Um, so it's really a lifelong internal process that we all go through when we begin to develop the type of health professional that we want to be. And I think for sure it changes over time. Andy, that was super helpful because I don't think I've thought about professionalism with those very concrete domains. And I also think that that gives us a structure when we think about what we're going to get to in the rest of the podcast around assessment of these. And 
Um, before we get into that, I wonder how do these domains factor into competencies? We, th we think about kind of professionalism as right. one of the things that um, we would uh, want medical students to graduate uh, competent in, um, if, if that was the right grammar structure of that sentence. So I'm just wondering kind of how you think about the specific domains relative to what is expected um, or is even a required competency for medical graduates. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Era, because as we think about competency-based education or competency-based assessment, we have to be able to break down some very kind of vague things like, do you care about patients <laughs> into behaviors that we can define and assess? And there are, as you can imagine, certain of these domains that are much easier to break down into competencies. Um, reliability, I think, is one that comes up a lot when I ask groups of faculty to think about, you know, a professionalism challenge that they've encountered a lot of the first things that come up are people that don't show up on time, people that don't reply to emails, you know, things like that. So it, often that reliability domain is one that is um, that is sort of easy to break down into competencies. Do you kind of do what you're supposed to do? Are you fulfilling the requirements of a rotation? And, and that's really just one of many domains of professionalism. Um, the really challenging ones, I think, are about kind of you know, interactions with others. And how do you define what is a, you know, patient-centered type of interaction? Um, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example that these domains are often in conflict with each other. And it happens to all of us on a regular basis. I mean, when was the last time you were seeing a patient and the patient ha was quite emotional or had some important needs that you needed to address and you realized I have to choose between spending more time with this patient and addressing what they need now and the fact that someone else is waiting for me, whether it's a colleague who's depending on me to come and give noon conference or there's another patient that's waiting. So we're constantly, these domains are in conflict with each other all the time. And, and when we've been in the practice of medicine for a while and our professional identity is quite well defined, we're able to make choices, right? We can say, no, the right thing to do in this situation is to be with the patient who needs me now and my colleague will understand. Or the other patient may be frustrated, but that's okay. So we're making these choices and we're not able to actually fulfill these things all the time, you know, at the same time to the degree that we would like to. Now, imagine a learner in that same situation, right? So now we have a person who doesn't have the power and privilege and hierarchy that we all hold, having been in these positions for a long time, who is, you know, and maybe doesn't even have the, the experience or, or the knowledge to know how to make those decisions. So they are going to make mistakes. There are going to be lapses. And I, I think that that having that knowledge is really helpful when we think about how to address someone who is challenged in this area. And if you are seeing a student or learner that's struggling in, in what you think is a professionalism domain, do you have some frameworks or tools to identify you know, what the specific domain might be or strategies to help them succeed? Absolutely. So I, I'm a person that really likes frameworks. And, you know, and I when I go into a situation, especially one that makes me anxious, like a professionalism concern or a learner that's kind of running, rubbing me the wrong way or might be struggling in a situation, I, I like to have something specific that I can follow. So, yes, I do. And I, I think one of the ones that I like to use for this particular um problem, and we can um, use it with Jake or practice it with Jake, is the SOAP framework. And what's nice about SOAP is it's a framework that we're all probably already familiar with um, in terms of, you know, a, a 
concise, problem-based um, clinical encounter. And there's slight variations on the SO and AP that I use for uh, addressing a professionalism challenge in a learner. So in this case, the S is really your subjective response. So in the case of Jake, I might say, you know, oh, wow, this kind of... Um, rubs me the wrong way. Jake doesn't seem to really be respectful of this person who is spending their time teaching the small group. That might be my initial response because I've been in that position. So the subjective response, what is it that that is kind of bothering you or seems to, to fall into that category of professionalism around the situation? The second piece of S, which is really essential, is kind of locating yourself in the situation. So how does my identity, my background, my previous experiences, my relationship to the learner, how is that influencing how I might be responding to this situation or what might be uh, bothering me about this situation? So that's the S. Really important to pay attention to, not enough to make an assessment based on. Okay, so we're going to pay attention to S, but we're not going to actually make an assessment or certainly do anything based on that. The O is where we bring in the domains of professionalism. So here's where we might think about what are the specific behaviors? What have I observed? I'm not making any assumptions about the intentions or what's behind the behaviors, but what have I actually seen that falls into a category of professionalism? What domains might be affected? Is this a reliability issue? Is this a, a self-maintenance self, uh, issue? Is this a community? communication issue. Um, and then there's also the scope of this. So is this something that is isolated to one situation? Is this something that is um, uh, present in other situations? Is it short term? Is it long term? Is it a single kind of event? Is it a part of a pattern? So those are all part of the O. And the other part that I would think about with O is other perspectives. Are there other perspectives that would be important to bring in before I talk to the learner? And this one is really tricky. And here's a great example with the situation you brought up with with Jake. Would it be important to get the perspective of the small group leader in this situation? Um, is it important to do that before we talk about Jake? And would it make Jake feel uncomfortable if we talk to the small group leader before we talk to Jake. So I think those are the kinds of things I think about before going into the conversation with the learner. The next step would be assessment and plan. And your assessment, I would say, should, before you speak with the learner, you should take into account two things. One is having a differential. And this is the same thing we teach our early learners before they go in to see a patient, right? If you see chief concern, chest pain, immediately that learner is going to think, am I, right? And so you you tell them is when you go into the, the, the situation, at least have three different things on your differential before you go in or you're going to anchor on the wrong thing. So same situation with a learner. Think of three completely different possible explanations for this behavior. Consider things like imposter syndrome. Consider things like mental or, or physical health issues. Consider... Um, maybe stress or well-being. So so really go in with a broad differential and that really helps you go into the conversation with compassion and and kindness and openness about what what you're going to see. And and then the final piece before you go into that conversation is recognizing that in your goal in the conversation is going to be to assess two things with Jake. One is Jake's insight. Does Jake recognize that the behaviors are potentially professionalism issues? Does Jake recognize these behaviors are problematic? And then adaptability. Is Jake ready and motivated to change, improve, or do something differently next time? So that's as far as I go before I have a conversation with the learner. And the next step is get in there and talk to Jake. I love that as a clinician. You know, we are so used to using that kind of framework and pulling on any of our tools that we're 
very well versed and from the clinical sphere is always helpful, I think, in the educational sphere. Um, maybe we could kind of hear you pretend to talk to Jake and how, how would that conversation go? So he's just kind of expressed that he had this unpleasant interaction with the small group teacher. He left sort of in a huff. And um, what would you say in response to that? Yeah. So I, this situation is interesting. I, I have to say that most of the situations where I'm I, either I find myself in or where I'm helping other faculty is that they've noticed something that they're concerned about. Um, and in this case, it sounds like the, the learner is coming to us with a concern or with an experience that they've had. So that actually is wonderful. When the learner's coming to you, there's already a bit of an opening there. And so I think I would really start with saying, gosh, Jake, it sounds like you had a really rough time. Tell me what happened. Just a nice open-ended question, just like we do with our patients. Tell me your perspective. Tell me everything that happened. How did it feel? What happened next? Um, you know, what? Just, just tell, tell me what's going on. And I think as Jake's coach, in this case, I have a role where my my main role is really supporting Jake. I think I would reflect back what Jake has experienced and try to be as supportive and open as possible, um, and really just validating and listening and and making sure that Jake feels heard initially. Um, and then I think the next step would be to, to try to assess Jake's insight. And to do that, I can think of a couple questions I might ask. Um, again, once I've sort of validated and I sense that Jake has felt that he's been able to express what he needs to express, in that case, I might ask Jake to say, you know, you, you're clearly bothered by what happened here. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's concerning to you. Um, so I might open with something like that. Um, you could even be more specific and say, you know, I wonder, did you consider um, how what happened might have impacted others in the group? Or, or what about the small group leader helping Jake to maybe take some different perspectives? Um, those are some things I can think of. I'm sure you can think of other great questions even better than those. But that that's probably how I would proceed. Andy, I love that. And I think you kind of really nicely structured with the SOAP framework, kind of walking through and, and, and touching on those things. If I recall correctly, you said you wanted to assess two things, which was kind of yes. Jake's insight and recognition, but also his adaptability and That's motivation right. for change or motivation to yeah. change. And I just wonder how you might get at that second piece. Um, and if That's there's right. particular questions or verbiage that you use that we can share with our listeners. Yeah. So I think for a learner who has insight, and I will say that most of my experience learners have very high insight and high adaptability, right? I mean, they recognize something here happened that was really challenging, shouldn't have happened. They don't want it to happen again. And they come in with a great deal of insight and adaptability. And, and so in many cases, the learner will already say, I've been thinking about this and here's what I think I would like to do, or here's what I, the help I would like from you. And then your role is really very easy, right? It's, you know, reflecting back some of those ideas, maybe adding a couple of other options that the learner hasn't considered um, and then really supporting them and saying, how can I be helpful and when should we check in again? So so that's great. Now, if a learner has insight, um, but you're not sure whether they have the adaptability or not, then I think some prompting questions might be, what might be some next steps for you? Or how do you think I could help you um, think about what to do next time or how a situation like this could be avoided. Um, so I think once you get a sense of what their goals are, then beginning to work with them and brainstorm around solutions. There is another framework, if I can put out another um, nice acronym uh, for this, which is called the GROWS framework, G-R-O-W-S. And that is a coaching framework. Um, 
that talks about goals. So what what are find a shared goal? What is the goal here? The goal is for this not to happen again, or the goal is to have a better relationship with this small group leader. Um, what's the reality? Where are we now? The reality is there was a kind of a rough day, and and maybe we're not on the best terms. Um, o is options. So what are several different things that could happen as a result? And this is often where you as the faculty member or coach can can offer some options that maybe the learner hasn't considered. Often they're like, well, the only option is for me to have a new small group leader or to you know leave medical school or whatever. Then you can say, wow, gosh, that's really understanding. You would feel that way. I can think of a few other options. Um, and W is way forward. So we think about the different options and which is the one that we want to choose for now. And then S is kind of the, the follow up. When shall we check in next time and, um, and see if we've succeeded um, with our goals? So, that, so that's a framework I would think about when we get to that adaptability and what are actually the next steps. And what about a learner that has low insight and, you know, isn't coming to you, but you've been that's right. asked to talk to them from some other faculty or? Sure. Sure. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up, because I, I honestly think one of the most important things to address here that I don't know that I've said explicitly is that lapses in professionalism are really inevitable, common, normal. They're going to happen. And I, I think, you know, we've come a long way in maybe thinking about medical errors in the same way, which is that these are things that are going to happen and, and to expect them to recognize they're going to happen and to really normalize them for our learners is really critical. Um, but occasionally you, you um, may encounter a learner who perhaps doesn't have that perspective. Maybe there have been a series of lapses. Maybe there's already been some feedback or some attempts at intervention that haven't succeeded. Um, and you have someone who may be challenged, perhaps, in insight. And, and I think that can be very challenging. Um, one of the things that I would probably recommend, again, this is where you really need to draw on that structural competency and cultural humility, is, is think about getting to know the learner a little bit more and thinking about what aspects of their background, their life, um, their health might be uh, might be interacting here and might be making it difficult for them to have that insight. Um, I know even speaking for myself as someone who grew up in a with a very, very privileged background um, and quite sheltered in, in many ways. And I really was un, unprepared for being able to kind of read the intentions of others in the medical setting and, and how to deal with some of the hierarchy and formality that I encountered in medical school. And a lot of it was just having someone sit down and say, you know, this is what's expected. Th these are the things that you're supposed to do in this situation. Um, so I, I think a lot of it is is really just be, having as much compassion as you can for the learner, learning a bit about them, recognizing um, that your own experience might be different than theirs or probably is different than theirs, and giving them a chance to tell you about their experience. Now, in very, very few situations, you might have a learner who truly doesn't believe that you know, showing up is important, for example. Um, and then you might have to actually be very, very concrete that in order to pass this rotation, you will need to come. You need to be here and you need to be here 70 percent of the days. And that's what's required to solve to pass the rotation. Would you like to pass the rotation? I would like you to pass the rotation, too. Let's see how we can get you to that place. Right. So it may not be getting them to a place where they're delighted to come and they're super motivated to do it. But it may be a, a point of, of really being just extremely extraordinarily and very simplistically clear about what expectations are and making sure that you've at least communicated that uh, those basic needs. And some of those examples that we've talked about already are, are things that are pretty concrete, you know, walking out of a class or missing a, missing 
you know, not showing up for a class. Sure. What about something more subtle that like a com- interprofessional communication issue yep. that, you know, say the, the medical assistants or the front desk staff have complained to you as a faculty that, you know, a certain resident isn't polite or isn't respectful? Yeah. How, how do you approach something that could be more biased or could um, include, you know, certain perspectives from from those members of the team as well. Yeah, so I, I think that's very challenging and you're bringing up a couple of different ideas here. One is that could could the assessment of professionalism be the problem? So the problem is not the learner themselves whose behavior is a problem. The problem is others who are interpreting the learner or assessing the learner in a way that is, as you point out, biased. And I think that's a very important issue that we need to consider. Um, In that case, I think, again, would probably start out with a conversation with the learner to find out what their perspective is. And you might uncover some information that um, you were not aware of, either from the story that you heard from someone else or, or that the people who are making the assessment of professionalism being a problem didn't consider. So again, I think having that conversation with the learner doing so in as open and inclusive and supportive a way as possible is often incredibly enlightening. Um, I don't think anyone really wants to be you know, rubbing people the wrong way. And in most situations, it's simply an issue of culture clashes or a difference of expectations. One of the issues that comes up a lot for me and that a lot of faculty will ask me about is um, generational differences. And there's a lot of controversy in the literature, I think, about whether those are real or, you know, how to handle them. But I, I often will think about generational humility, similar to the way I think about cultural humility, which is really recognizing that people are coming from very very different experiences. Their goals and their values may at the at the core really be the same, but the way that they're expressing those things are different. And so a very specific example is things like responding to emails, right? I may have in my mind that if you don't respond to my email, that's disrespectful. Whereas um, a, a learner might feel like, uh, you know, uh, there was no need for a reply. It was an email. And if you text me, then I know it's really important and then I'm going to reply to you. And what's more important is me studying or spending time with my patients, right? So So it's not necessarily coming out of a core of disrespect for either communication or for me as a as a person um, that the values are really the same, but the expression of it is just different. And that's, again, where the humility is is really important. Wow, Andy, I'm just like the framework Palooza, the pearls that are being dropped. I'm really um, just taking it all in. Uh, So just to go back really quick in terms of the SOAP um, framework that we wanted to especially highlight where we talked about the subjective, we talked about locating yourself, the um, objective behaviors or observations that you're seeing, and then kind of that assessment and plan where you're coming in with the differential of maybe three things that might be going on. Is the P, just because, you know, some some of us may be pretty concrete, is the P plan part the um, aspect where you're assessing that insight and adaptability? Or is there something else that goes into the plan? Like, what are my next steps? When are we going to follow up? Kind of. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that, Iris. I don't think I made that clear. So the assessment is the is the insight and adaptability. So that's really what you're assessing. Um, the tool for doing that is this kind of open-ended questions with supportive questioning, reflecting back, um, showing, you know, validating the learner, et cetera. And then your plan is going to have to be based on your, in, your assessment of their insight and adaptability. And again, if the 
if the learner has a high insight and adaptability, they've probably already come up with a plan. And it's really a matter of supporting them and saying, how can I be there for you? And when should we check in again? The GROWS framework, which is that coaching framework, can be helpful at developing a plan. If it's if they don't come in already with their idea, then that sort of walks you through how you might help them to refine their plan. Um, but some other really important things with the plan is, is having it be quite concrete having there be some very agreed upon simple steps that both you and the learner agree are the next steps um, and having some sort of a plan for reassessment. So when should we check in again to see how things are going? Um, I think those are some really key components there of the plan. And our, our primary case was with Jake, a medical student. If we're working with yeah. a resident, does that kind of change how right. you think about this or really many of this, much of this yeah. is very applicable? Yeah. So I think it may depend a little on whether you have an ongoing relationship with them or not. Um, I think if it's a resident that I haven't worked with before and that I don't necessarily know, I think I would really go in with a very open mind and a kind of a clean slate and just, you know, tell me what what happened and, and really just approach it exactly the same way. In many cases with residents, we sort of assume that they have a little bit more knowledge of how they should be acting or what the expectations are. And so often residents are judged a little bit more harshly for lapses in professionalism than, say, a student might be. And to be very fair, they're in a much more high stakes environment, right? A lapse in professionalism could result in a patient care issue. And so I do want to be clear that, you know, while we're talking about relatively minor lapses here, there are occasionally situations where things need to be bumped up to a higher level, uh, a person coming to work impaired, a, a violation of a Title IX protection or, or, um, or a protected group being, being harmed, certainly significant patient care harm, especially if there's intentionality or something like that involved. I think those really are not where you sit down and have this open-ended, kind, validating conversation with somebody. Then I think you involve... Um, other folks. But again, that's the, that's really the minority of situations. Um, so I think, honestly, in most situations, I would approach this just the same way and follow the exactly the same framework um, and um, and really try to start with an open-ended conversation with the learner. I think one of the things I run into a lot when talking with faculty development about this is people feel like, well, you know, I'm not the clerkship director. I shouldn't be having this conversation with the person or I don't know, maybe this is a pattern, maybe it isn't. And I, I really would encourage you to, to just based on what you personally have observed and your, you know, what, what you personally have seen and observed to have a conversation with them. Um, many learners are going to tell you that either this is something I've been struggling with, or this is something I have or haven't gotten feedback on. And really, until that you see or are concerned that there's a pattern developing, I think having that conversation yourself is the most honest and open thing. And this is what learners really appreciate, right? Not putting it in the in the evaluation at the very end that I saw all these things I was concerned about, but actually having that conversation with the learner. And yes, it causes us a lot of anxiety, but with some of these wonderful acronyms, at least for me, it helps, <laughs> it helps decrease the anxiety a little bit. And Andy, because some of us are, you know, working on recovering from their concreteness, um, which is me. Um, if you, you know, are a busy uh, clinician and you're, mm -hmm. let's say in your, you know, primary pediatrics clinic and there's somebody who is just not coming to clinic late, not finishing yeah. their notes, kind of in the expected time that they are aware of, how do you just kind of concretely find the time and make kind of an intentional choice to say like, I know they're about to go see their first patient, but I'm going to bring this up now. Or I know that they're That's trying right. to run and catch the shuttle, but this like That's needs right. to be addressed. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a great point, Erin. I think the practicality is so important to address here. And, and there's a lot that overlaps with, I think, the literature. And I know you've done sessions before on feedback as well. So really thinking about making sure that you're in a space, <laughs> that you can have this conversation and that the learner's in a space where they can have the conversation. So I will usually try to fire a warning shot um, and say, you know, hey, at the end of the day, we've been working together for a week or so. I was hoping we could check in about how the rotation is going, um, depending on the situation you may want to be very open with a learner and say, actually, I've seen a couple things I, I was a little concerned about and was hoping we could talk about them, right? So you can imagine different situations where that might be a more compassionate, fair, and honest way to open the conversation versus something much more global. Like, hey, you know, we're halfway through the conversation. As we talked about two weeks ago, we were going to check in. How does today work for you, right? So give, give them a little fair warning. Um, set aside some time to do it. Uh, yes, the practicalities of our work and of our learners' lives as well can make that challenging, um, but I, I think making it a priority is important. Um, and you know, you never know what direction this conversation is going to go in. So finding, if you can, a private space um, and making it clear that I was hoping we could talk for about 15 minutes. If it takes five, that's great. If it takes a little bit longer, um, maybe you can create some space for that as well. Um, but but you make a great point. Sometimes it does feel a little overwhelming or, gosh, they're about to go on another rotation. Someone else will deal with it. Um, but I really would encourage you to, to try to have these conversations. And then I will say one other really practical tip is to document it. Um, document it in an email to yourself. People have different ways of doing this or document it in the, ideally in the, in the learner's evaluation. We talked on this date. We talked about this and that. Um, and that's enormously helpful, not only for the learner, for their own development, um, but also if in fact there is a pattern, having documented that you had these conversations and when you had them can be very helpful for others who are in more of a leadership position um, to then go back and kind of have that trail. And do you do you know of any literature around if at learners with repeated professionalism concerns, does that lead to like, are they more likely to have a serious professionalism concern as an attending? Are they more likely to have one of those things that you mentioned, you know, working yeah. impaired or, um, you know, other yeah. kinds of serious issues? It's a great question. It really sort of gets at the core of why, why do are this? we doing the this? <laughs> yeah, the reason we do it is yes. Um, now, again, it's a very tiny minority of of learners who will have you know repeated or egregious uh, lapses in professionalism. But yes, early there's very good literature that early um, recognition of professionalism challenges, even in the sort of undergraduate years, um, in the for students, are is associated with a higher risk of you know discipline from the board, loss of license, some of the these very, very rare, but um, but sort of egregious end endpoints. Um, and I will also say that all of those particular consequences, being kicked out of a residency, losing your license, et cetera, are also applied in inequitable ways. And there's also very good evidence that folks who are from minority groups or under underrepresented in medicine are more likely to have faced some of these challenges and to be disciplined for them. Uh, not because they're doing them more often, uh, but because, as we've talked about, the assessment is biased. So I, I think it's very important to consider and hold both of those things. Andy, that was super helpful. I wonder if you are, um, let's say, uh, talking to Jake's clinic preceptor, or in this case, uh, as we are doing on this podcast, because we love being meta, being kind of like a faculty development person, let's say, to help yeah. out um, 
uh, Jake or whoever is working with Jake in recognition of this professionalism lapse, do you um, frame the conversation differently? Like, do you kind of interject this evidence of like why we are assessing people or why we talk about professionalism and that the assessment is biased or kind of how do you adjust your framing or your teaching for that faculty development piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it depends a little bit on on who I'm working with. I mean, I, I do do faculty development on this topic. And honestly, I start out with all the stuff we talked about at the beginning about how this is pre- potentially very fraught with bias, or I shouldn't say potentially, it is <laughs> fraught with bias and, and historically has been a very problematic concept and that, and that our learners will have a very different experience of what it means to be a professional and different expectations of that. Um, so I, I start out with that. And I think if I'm working with a faculty member that I don't know well, I might ask them about their experience addressing professionalism lapses um, and what their their personal experience with professionalism has been. Have they themselves struggled in this area? Um, is it something that they um, may have personal experiences that, that set them up either for being particularly judgmental toward a learner or be, being maybe, uh, you know, so kind of um, uh, permissive that they're not able to, to help the learner actually to change their behavior in a way that can be helpful for them. So, so you know, h- helping to have them maybe reflect a bit on well, what their own experience is, kind of like that S part of SOAP. And then I definitely will, um, you know, talk with them about what, what areas they're most concerned about. For most folks, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, how do I how do I start the conversation? I think that's often the piece that is most anxiety provoking for people. So um, I'll usually spend a little bit of time talking about that. And then I think opening people's eyes to the to the different domains and helping them to begin to think about what what domains might be affected. How might that affect what your uh, ultimate solution might be or more appropriately, what what kinds of causes there might be for for what you've observed. I, I think really just helping helping people to open their mind a little bit and expand on what they're already thinking about so that they go into that conversation um, with a bit more of an open perspective. I think that those would be the areas I would focus on. Well, this has been fantastic. Ira, did you have any other questions or Andy, things that you think we haven't touched on that are important to cover? I think just, have we missed any key aspects of your verbiage, Andy? Anything that you use, especially kind of working in the anti-oppressive world and the anti-oppressive curriculum and kind of trying to ensure equity in a biased and fraught um, kind of area. Have we missed anything that you definitely would like to share on this topic? Yeah, no, I, I think I've shared a lot of the, the buzzwords that I think are important and probably just the most important thing is awareness, right? Recognizing that there's a difference between being professional and assessing professionalism, um, recognizing that, you know, many of the things that we consider professionalism are based on a particular version of the medical profession, which is not where we are, where we want to be. It's where we were. Um, and I think having that awareness is is so critical as we move forward. The generational humility is something I think about a lot um, as a person in my early 50s. And, um, you know, I I struggle sometimes to relate to some of the things that are important to our younger learners. um, And yet they are without question the most passionate, the most dedicated, the the most, you know, justice focused um, group of learners I've ever worked with. And and so I, I think keeping that in mind is is so important. Fantastic. Well, that almost sounded like take-home points, but are there any other take-home points? Or uh... Yeah, I think just to wrap it up, I would say, you know, number one is have the conversation. Um, just, you know, yes, you're the right person to do it. And yes, there are, there are ways to do this. Have the conversation. If you, if you see something 
say something <laughs> to use another sort of little little framework. Um, and I would say the SOAP framework will help you prepare for the conversation. And then really thinking about as you go into the conversation, your goals are really to assess insight and adaptability. And so thinking about how you can ask questions that will help you with those things, because really your plan should be based on those aspects of uh, what you find out about the learner. And Andy, is there anything that you want to plug? Any, I don't know, soapy books you have coming out or, for, or other <laughs> articles or frameworks that are happening? Definitely not. Yeah. No, I can't. I can't think of anything. I, th I think the, the literature on this topic is so constantly evolving and I'm, I'm always very interested in seeing seeing what's new and what's out there. Um, but yeah, I think as, as our learners themselves begin to write on this topic, I'm sure it will it will change even more. So it's a really exciting area to be involved in. Well, thank you so much, Andy. Um, this has been great. Yes. Thanks, Andy. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It was a great opportunity. Uh, well, Ira, that was just such a wonderful conversation with Dr. Marmore. What kind of take-homes do you have? Well, Molly, you know me and you know I love a good framework. And I feel like we have two awesome ones, um, the SOAP and the GROWS. I think I might uh, focus on the GROWS just because I um, we have been at AIM and there was a lot of coaching content. And I really liked uh, what Andy shared about kind of coming up with that shared goal or sharing the reality. Where are we now? Kind of um, what's happening in our options? Kind of what are things that, uh, you know, routes we could take? Some maybe that the learner or whoever you're speaking to hasn't considered. And then what's the way forward? So with these options, kind of what do we choose? And then scheduling that kind of follow-up and check-in, um, I think is one that I'm going to use definitely in these conversations. Those are great. Yeah, I, I've used the SOAP framework before and I found it super helpful. And I, I think I hadn't paid as much attention to assessing the learner's insight and readiness for change. Um, so that's something that I'm going to incorporate a little bit more. And then I really just liked her super practical tips on how to think about fitting these conversations in and just reminding us that just have them. It's really important to be the one, you know, if you see it, you should talk to the learners about it, not just sort of passing it on to the next. Um, and I liked her kind of framing it as potentially giving the learner a warning shot of, you know, there are a few things that I have concerns about and I want to make sure we have time to talk about them later today. Um, you know, so giving, setting that expectation that the conversation is going to happen. Yeah. And I just wanted to kind of uh, pin that Molly, which is, I love how Andy said, like, I just would love to chat for 15 minutes. It might take five minutes and that's great. And kind of, we can, you know, see how it goes, but making sure that the learner knows that this is important to you. And I totally agree with you that kind of that finding the practical space for that is hard, but then signaling that it's important is also key for the learner. So I love that. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project. And thanks to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to the team at Podpaste for editing our audio and supporting our releases. Also to our social media team, Andrew Delat on Instagram and John Ong on Twitter. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblein. And we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. Reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowskaya. Thank you so much for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.